to the Canucks. Uh, you can carry those on downstairs at lunch today. In a city like ours, new developments and construction are a constant. New homes, new buildings, it feels like everywhere you turn right now, you can see something being built. And my kids have practically trained me to keep an eye out for these different things, for crane trucks, for diggers, for bulldozers, to, to just keep an eye out for all the different things that are happening when it comes to construction. In our neighborhood alone, a hospital close by is having this whole new addition that's being added to it, and they're excavating, and so that is a big, cool thing for a kid, something that they often want to check out. There's always new things being built up. Similarly, there's often new people coming to our city. People coming from other provinces, from other cities, from other towns, and even other nations. All of them are coming here to build a better life. Everyone is out to build a life. And often the question is, what are you building? What is it that you are constructing? Interestingly enough, when you look at Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't focus on that question, what are you building? Instead, he asks, what kind of builder will you be? He contrasts these two different builders. It's a question of who you will be, of who, not what. The kind of builder that you choose to be determines whether or not your house will stand through the greatest trials of life. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and today marks really the conclusion of that, of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has taught through so many different uh, things in this message. And today we come to this concluding last warning that he gives us. We find it in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through to 29, and this is what it says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Lord Jesus, we still ourselves right now. We ask that you would enable us to hear you anew, this morning, that your words would penetrate our ears, our hearts, and change us so that what comes into our hearts would actually pour forth out of our hands and our feet and our mouth, that we would do the things that you call us to do, that we would be the people you call us to be. By your love, by the Holy Spirit's empowerment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The final words of Jesus' sermon, this amazing sermon that began with comfort when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom 
of God. Now ends with a series of warnings. And over the last few weeks, we've looked at these warnings. The first was, choose which gate you will enter through. The narrow gate and, and narrow path or the wide and easy path. Enter through me. There's no other way to life, Jesus says. Then he says, choose which kind of prophet you will allow to influence you. A true or false prophet, abide in me. I am the one that enables you to bear good fruit. And today he's saying, which foundation will you build your life on? Solid rock or sand? Only one house will remain when the storms and trials of life come. Two gates, two prophets, two foundations, each one of them requires you to make a choice. And yet only one choice leads to the life that you were meant for. And so the big idea this morning is this. The foundation you build your life on will determine whether or not you stand through the greatest trials of life. See, Jesus wants you to be a builder who hears him and does what he says. And he uses this parable of these two different groups of people, and yet they're strikingly similar. Those who hear Jesus' words and do what he says, they build on the solid rock. Those who hear his words and don't do what he says, they build on sand. Both are builders. They're both building something. Both of them hear Jesus' words. Both experience the same storms, same rain, same flooding, same winds blowing upon their homes. Both of the homes look the same. One house, though, won't fall when that storm comes, and the other will fall with a great crash. The difference, Jesus insinuates, is the foundation. That's it. The difference is what they build on. The difference is what they did in response to Jesus' words. That's it. So one of the questions becomes then, when Jesus says, so those who hear my words, these words of mine, and put them into practice, what, what is he referring to when he says, everyone who hears these words of mine? Which words are he referring to? Is he referring to? And what he's talking about is all of the words that he's said on the Sermon on the Mount. When you read Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and 7, the, in these chapters, Jesus is the only one speaking. Nobody else speaks. See, what fills God with joy, Jesus will teach us, and stands as this powerful declaration of the truth of the gospel is this practical and generous obedience to Jesus. An obedience that transforms our character, it affects our influence, it shows itself in being rightly related to God, others, ourselves, and the world. It marks our personal devotional lives. It upends our ambitions and desires, and it changes our relationships. It marks us as wholeheartedly committed to Jesus. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. So what kind of builder will you be? Now, one of the questions I had when I was reading this is, why would Jesus focus on the foundation? Why would he focus on the foundation you build on and not on what you're building? You see someone doing a project in your neighborhood or wherever you are, you get curious, like, what are you building? We're not asking, what are you building on? Yet Jesus wants us to think in this way. He focuses on the foundation. 
Why? I want to suggest just three reasons. One is Jesus is because Jesus knows that everyone builds. Frederick Dale Bruner, he says, everyone is building a house, a life, a career, a family. Everyone builds a house on some foundation. For everyone believes that something is true and stable. And Jesus invites his hearers to believe that his words are the most stable foundation in the world. We are hardwired to want to build, to improve, to cultivate, to develop, to grow in our capacity and our character, and to develop cultures, business, our knowledge base, community, family. And you need to believe that something is true and stable in order for you to build. We build to what we believe is our vision for the good life. Whatever our vision for, it, uh, for the good life is, that's what we're going to want to build towards in our lives. We will build to the, our measure of what we believe is good, true, and beautiful. And Jesus says you need to decide what that will be for you. The second reason is because he wants you to choose whose words you will live by. See, words, thoughts, ideas, they help shape our understanding of life, reality, of how life goes together. Everyone lives by someone's words. The question isn't whether or not you're going to live by the words of others, because we're social beings. We are formed by other people, by the people we keep company with over life. We all live by someone's words. And so the question isn't whether or not you will, it's the question of whose words will you live, live by? Whose words will shape the way you live? Whose words will shape and direct the way you treat and relate to the poor, to your boss, to your family, to your neighbors, to your enemies, to politicians? Whose words will determine the way you relate to God? Whose words will shape the way you understand yourself, your value, your purpose, and the meaning of life? Jesus says you have to choose. you got to make that call. You get to decide. Not practicing what I teach is a decision. It's doing something. If you don't live by my words, you will live by someone else's. You'll live a mash, this mashup of your own, coupled with maybe other leaders, your parents, mentors, friends, philosophical greats, religious teachers, you will live by someone else's words. So you choose, though. But you need to understand, there's only one foundation that can bear the weight of what life will throw at you. There's only one foundation that you'll be able to stand on when you stand before me at the end of time. The third reason Jesus focuses on this foundation is because he knows you will face trials. Everyone faces trials in life. And some of them are really simple, and others are the stuff that can make or break you. And there's two types of trials that we will all face in life. One is the types of trials that everyone goes through in life. Sometimes it's loss. Sometimes it is a, a moral challenge that we end up facing. And this imagery for the rains, the floods, the winds, this is imagery for that, for all the trials that we face in life. But this is also imagery for God's final judgment. And it's a theme he's been playing on with these other warnings he's given us in the narrow gate or the wide gate. 
in the true and false prophets, and now he's giving us it again here. It's this imagery for a person's entire life standing before God in the presence of him. When the kingdom of heaven comes in its fullness, when Christ returns, we'll all stand before him, and we'll face a storm as our lives are weighed in terms of how we responded to Jesus. Everyone will face both of these types of storms in this life and then in the next. And so here Jesus is not teaching us, if you hear my words and you practice them, your house will glow in the dark. He is not saying, if you hear my words and practice them, your house will grow into a mansion. He's also not promising that if you do what he teaches, you will be able to avoid the storms. He's not saying that. He's not saying, if you obey me and do what I teach, I will be a shield in all of your troubles and I'll be a good luck charm for you. That is not what he's promising. Challenges, trials, pressures will hit you just as hard as the one who hears and doesn't put it into practice. In this life, you will face loss, betrayal, hurt, uncertainty, failure, confusion. You will grieve and weep whether or not you choose to put my words into practice. So what he's saying here is, if you will do what I teach here, if you hear what I say and then trust me by putting my words into practice in your relationship with me, with your family, your co-workers, your friends, your neighbors, those in need, all the people you come into contact with in life, I will not protect you from all of these challenges, but I will enable you to stand through all of them. Because you build your life on me, I will take all the losses the betrayal, the hurt, the failures, the uncertainty and confusion, and use that as fertilizer to grow you and transform you into someone who looks like me. Because if you build your life on me, I will not let anything separate you from my love. Nothing, not poverty, not death, famine, danger, threats, the demonic, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God and Jesus Christ. You will not be alone. I will be with you always until the end of the age, Jesus says, at the very end of this gospel of Matthew. Because if you build your life on me, you will persevere under trial. And when you've stood the test, I will give you the crown of life. See, this is why James, Jesus' brother, has the audacity to write to fellow Christians saying in James 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. You want me to be happy when I face trials? James is like, yes. Consider it pure joy, not just a little joy, not a sprinkle. Pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, the only thing that Jesus actually highlights as impressive in this last word he gives us on the Sermon on the Mount is that the house that is built on his foundation will be standing in the end. That's the only impressive thing here. When everything is said and done, that's what matters. The house stood. It endured. It made it through the storm of life and the storm to come. And only ones who attempt to put his words into practice will remain standing. 
Now, here's why we need to hear this. Because we don't often believe that Jesus knows how life works best. Like, we can hear the Sermon on the Mount, and we're like, that sounds nice, like, in theory. As an idealist, like, it's kind of naive, though. You want me to turn my cheek when someone hits me. You want me to walk the extra mile when someone has forced me to go one. Other. You want me to give the person who's stealing from me my coat as well. You want me to love my enemies. You want me not to store up anything on earth, but to store up treasures in heaven. You want me to live as if God is the only audience that I please? You want me not to be anxious about anything, but to focus my life on God's kingdom and his ways? You see, Jesus' words here are actually directed at his followers. This is a story of two kinds of Christians. He's talking about people in this room. His message is to people in this room. This isn't about one person who's a follower of Jesus and does what Jesus says and the other who isn't. They're both listeners. Both believe Jesus' words are important enough to listen to, but only one believes they are realistic enough to live out. One thinks this is way too idealistic. It isn't grounded in the reality of human relationships and human life. We don't believe he knows how life works best. And the reason for that is because we've failed to see that Jesus, the man, is also God himself among us. Look at what Matthew writes at the end of the sermon. Once Jesus has finished, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. The teachers of the law interpreted, they made sense of, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He spoke with this authority. See, Jesus taught with authority because he wasn't just another wise rabbi. He wasn't just a prophet who occasionally spoke God's message to God's people. Jesus spoke with authority because he himself is God the Son. And everything that God wanted to say to us in a person. Therefore, when we hear the Sermon on the Mount, we are hearing God speak to us. And when you look at Jesus' life, he didn't just speak with authority. No, he has authority over all things. See, Moses ascends the mountain, Mount Sinai, to receive the law, the covenant from God, and then he comes and relays it to God's people. But what we see in Jesus is one who ascends, but he does not receive he delivers with authority. Someone than, greater than Moses is among us. And as Jesus descends off of this mountain, you will see in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is the master of life. From the finest details, he is the master of molecules. He really, really gets how life goes together. He's not just speaking as if these are ideals. He's actually practicing what he preaches. Dallas Willard, he notes that Jesus knew how to transform the structure of molecules of water, of, of water and turn it into wine. And he says he knew how to transform the tissues of the human body 
from sickness to health and from death to life. He knew how to suspend gravity, interrupt weather patterns, and eliminate unfruitful trees with a saw or axe. He only needed a word. He always has the best information on everything, and certainly also on the things that matter most in human life. And the early Christians, they recognized this. They saw within Jesus these treasures of wisdom and knowledge, as Colossians tells us. For this reason, there's this one guy I read this week who said, anyone who hears Jesus' words and doesn't do them is a fool. What Jesus wants you to see through this contrasting image of these two things is what's at stake in life when we fail to build our life on him. When we hear his words and don't put them into practice, we become these trees that are diseased. And over time, we bear bad fruit. You will not, you cannot experience the fullness of life that God intends for you. You won't experience the joy of serving, the thrill of being forgiven, and forgiving others if you don't do what Jesus teaches us to do. And over time, it'll show. In the moment, when there's no storm, the houses look the same. Solid. Nice. It's not until the storm hits when then things are revealed for what they are. When we practice, though, the way of Jesus, we declare not only that we, what we believe about him, but we end up bearing fruit because we've built our lives on a firm foundation. And so here's what we need to do. We need to build our lives on his words. Build your life on Jesus' words. Put them into practice. Sometimes we think, as long as I believe in Jesus, doesn't matter what I do, he'll forgive me and I'm, it's all good. And that's a complete misunderstanding of the good news. Jesus saves us from our sin, from separation from God, but he saves us too into a relationship with him, into discipleship. God isn't opposed to, to uh, he is opposed to earning, but he's not opposed to effort. Our doing flows from this encounter with Jesus, from first having heard him. And Jesus has given us this vision for the good life here, and he's invited you to join him in this way that actually leads to flourishing and wholeness. And when you can participate in the kingdom of heaven, when you do the will of the Father by being with Jesus and obeying him. And he's saying here, if you want to experience this life, you cannot just hear me and act like you didn't hear it. You must be the kind of builder who can work under me. You must be the kind of builder who knows how desperately poor and in need you are of me. You must be the kind of builder who is willing to learn from me, who will listen to me, who is willing to wholeheartedly trust me, who lives in my love for you and for others, who forgives, who practices sacrificial generosity, who asks my Father for help who prioritizes my Father's kingdom and being rightly related to Him over everything else. This is a lifelong thing. We repeatedly do this, repeatedly trying to do, trying to put into practice what He teaches us, and it's a long obedience in the same direction. 
There's a movie that came out in 2016 called Sully. Does anybody know it? Come on, I'm, I'm sure a bunch of you during the pandemic watched a lot of movies. Okay? There's no need to be ashamed. We know. Okay? Sully, a couple of you have seen it. it. The main character, the actor, was Tom Hanks. And in this movie, he plays Chelsea Sully Selling, uh, Sullinger III. The movie is about the miracle on Hudson. See, in 2009... Sully is an aviation pilot, and he was flying U.S. Air, Airways Flight 1549, and it made an emergency water landing on the Hudson River. A flock of geese had flown into the jet engines, causing both of them to fail. And Sully successfully landed the plane on the Hudson River, and all 155 passengers evacuated the plane safely. Hence, miracle on Hudson. But that name can kind of deceive you just a little bit because it makes you kind of assume that God must have divinely intervened and changed the course of events to guide Sully to land it. When in reality, God actually had worked throughout Sully's life for that moment. See, here's a list of things that Sully did in the years preceding this pivotal flight. He started flying at the age of 16. He joined the Air Force after graduating high school. He became a, a glider instructor in his early 20s. He was an Air Force pilot for five years. And on the day that he had landed Flight 1549, he had already spent nearly 30 years as a commercial pilot. Sully had been flying planes for more than 40 years. He was 58. See, Sully didn't rely on this spontaneous burst of courage in that moment. He didn't just go grab and whip out the manual, how do I land a plane on, on a river? He didn't, he didn't do that. God didn't just take over his body and his eyes rolled in the back of the head and he landed. That's not what happened. Maybe Hollywood might want to portray it that way. That's not what actually happened, though. No, Sully spent his life developing the character and skill needed to handle this situation. It wasn't overnight. It was over his life, practicing, learning, doing. And so when the crisis hits, he's able to land that plane with no engines safely and do it with calmness. And this is what Jesus is calling his people to do. To those who will hear and put into practice. To build your life on his words so that you can live with confidence that over a lifespan of obeying him, following him, with the help of the Spirit that you would develop, he will develop in you the character and skill to handle the trials that you will encounter in such a way that others actually experience life and flourishing because of your faithfulness. Sully has no idea that all the things that he has done over these 40 years of learning how to be a pilot will impact him and actually save the lives of many other people. But that's often how life works. You can't see that when you're a 16-year-old and you just enjoy flying. Make the effort to obey him to do what he says today. Make that investment. Secondly, build 
your life with his future in mind. Choose to live with more than just this life in mind, this moment in mind, and understand that the life we live now shapes and prepares us for the life when the kingdom of heaven comes in fullness. N.T. Wright, he says, What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day when we leave it behind altogether, as this hymn so mistakenly puts it. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Build your life on his words so that you can live with this confidence that the things that you do, the people you become, the sacrificial acts of generosity that you do will last into God's future, eternity. It's worth it. Third, build your life on his love. Build your life on his love. Jesus wants you to build your life on his love. He is the solid rock you can build on. See, love drove Jesus to come to us. Probably the most famous passage in the New Testament, God so loved the world, he sent his son. Love drove Jesus to come to us, to become one of us, to suffer for us, and ultimately die for us. And it is the love of God that gives us new life. Romans 5 says, because you put your ultimate trust in Jesus, that God's love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. It's really tempting to look at the Sermon on the Mount and these warnings and think that it is all focused on what you do and it's all placed on you. And if you do that, you miss what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's one of the tensions that you can discover if you only ever read a little passage at a time. You miss the big picture. You miss the context. But love and grace permeates the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a gift of love. And if you read the whole thing, you see that. See, before all of the commands that Jesus gives us here, his love and grace comes to us in the form of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. Those are his first words. You are blessed when you recognize how desperately you need him. Blessed are those who mourn, he says, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be rightly related to God, to others, to themselves, and to the world, for they will be satisfied. They're hungering and thirsting because they, they don't have it. They long for it. They sense that it's incomplete, and they want it. And Jesus says, you're blessed when you experience that. You will be satisfied. You will be full. It starts with his love. And his love and grace are what enable us to do the commands that follow when he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And it is his love that, and grace that picks us up in the middle of failing to live his commands. We need to hear this. He starts with these beatitudes. He moves to you are. You are the light of the world. 
You are the salt of the earth. And then these commands. And as you hear these commands, if you read it this week, it's really easy to be like, man, I do not live up to this picture. And what's so vitally important about reading the Sermon on the Mount is that right in the middle of it, Jesus says, he teaches us this prayer. If you're going to pray, this is how you pray. And in the middle of that prayer is this wonderful, amazing, life-giving line. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We are going to get it wrong. We will listen to our enemies, the enemy's words. We'll build with what we think is best. We will listen to the words of others and build our lives on what they say. We, we will build with short-term and selfish motives in mind. We will try to build our lives on the love of fickle human beings instead of the love of God. And Jesus knows that. And so he says right here in the middle of the sermon, when you do and you realize it, pray like this, Father in heaven, forgive me and forgive us. And he says us because it's not just you that gets it wrong. It's his people. It's all of humanity. We have all missed the mark and we all need forgiveness. We need his grace. We need his love. He gets it. Love precedes the sermon. Love permeates it. And it's his love that enables us to get back up. Build your life on his words. Build your life with his future in mind. Build your life on his love. Because if you do, no matter what trials come your way, you will discover through experience that there's no firmer foundation than Jesus Christ. That there's nothing else that will hold you, that will grip you. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Make your name real among us. Bring your kingdom here in Vancouver as it is in heaven. Do your good, perfect, and pleasing will among us in our lives like it's already done in heaven. Give us our daily bread, the things that we need to live, to obey you, to trust you, and forgive us. Forgive us for all of the moments where we don't live with you in mind. We live with us as king or queen. We live not trusting you, but trusting in our own wisdom. Forgive us for the moments where we've heard your words and actually said, I'm actually going to do what I think is better. Forgive us for all the things that we have done to hurt others, Lord. And forgive us for all the times we failed to trust you and obey you. And Lord, we ask that you'd give us strength to trust you and to resist when we do face temptations. 
And as we go into this week, Lord, we ask that you would enable us to hear your words anew. And then this time, to obey you. That we would be a people who build our lives on your words, with your future in mind and with your love. Jesus, you really are the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to live into that reality. Shape us and change us, Lord. Have your way with us, we pray. For your glory and our joy. Amen.